month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josedach, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Josedek, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites, 20 years of age and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Jeshua and his sons and brothers of, and brothers in Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of the temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Jim Gilliam was an early pioneer with internet startups. He was one of those who designed one of the first search engines, uh, Lycos. He says there were two loves in his life from his earliest years. Jesus and computers. When he turned... Oh, his father was an engineer in Silicon Valley, and they lived across the street from a large conservative church, evangelical church like ours. So they'd go to church three times on a Sunday, and the rest of his time he'd be... uh, Three times a week, twice on a Sunday, once on a Wednesday. And the rest of his time he'd be spending between school and uh, computers. At eight years old, he gave his life to Christ. 
And then he went off to a school that many of us know the name Jerry Falwell. He went off to college at Liberty University. So basically, like us, maybe a little bit more conservative than us, loved Jesus and loved computers. Now he has a popular talk on the web called, hmm, The Internet is My Religion. And he, this week, he, that talk was developed into a book that was published this past week. The Internet is My Religion. And it captures what happened in his life when he was at Liberty University at a Christian school after having grown up in a Christian church. At Liberty, while he was running their whole... He brought computers on the campus. He brought the Internet onto campus, basically, while he was running their computer systems as a student. While he was at Liberty, he came down with cancer. And then they, he was diagnosed and he started treatment. But within two weeks, his mother was diagnosed with cancer. He survived. She didn't. And then his cancer recurred. And so now his religion is no longer Jesus and computers. His religion is now the Internet. And really what he means by the Internet is human connectivity that the Internet makes possible. Because it was, it was human connectivity that got him a bone marrow transplant so he could still be alive now. But it raises the question, when crisis hits, you know, two diagnoses and one recurrence and one death in just a short span of time, when crisis hits a family, when crisis hits a Christian family, does our faith help or does our faith actually hurt? When crisis hits a Christian family, does the Bible help? Or does the Bible actually hurt? And I would submit to you this morning, the point I want to demonstrate this morning, is that it can either help or it can either hurt, depending on the content of our faith, depending on the way we read the Bible. Notice one of the most popular verses, any young Christian memorizes this verse. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for a future and a hope. And we don't know anything about the, the verse except we do, all we know is the content. And then we take that verse and we bring it to our lives and then we think God intends only good for us. And, and we can easily assume that only good will happen to us. And then maybe cancer hits or someone we love dies. Now, I, I, there's a lot of positive things that we could say about Jim Gillian's Gilliam's uh, message, you know, his, his talk. And I haven't read the book yet. I've just listened to the talk. But uh, there's a lot of positives we can bring out of that. And, and I don't want to appear at all insensitive or, or unsympathetic this morning. Because if you've been here for five or ten years, you realize, you would have heard the stories, you would realize my family went through, my family of origin went through something very similar with not so positive an outcome as his family. So I've personally experienced the challenge that crisis can be to our faith and to our reading of the Bible. And that's really what we want to apply today's text to. But before we get into that, let me just give you, uh, let me just back up a minute to show where we've been. No, this can't be. 
If you were here last week, you will know that an engineer used this and had no problem with it, and then I got my hands on it and it wouldn't work. Now, what you may not know is my son's an engineer. My son. My son's an engineer. So an engineer just had his hands on it again, and it worked. And I get my hands on it, and it won't work. And one of our engineers from last week figured out why it wouldn't work last week for me, and I'm not doing that this week. And it still won't work. Uh, now, is this spiritual warfare, or is this just technological incompetence? Okay, Nate, I'm depending on you. Oh, here we go. Did you do that? Okay, all right, well, we're going to move along. Okay, so look, what we've been looking at for the last... Engineers enjoy it, you know. My vocabulary is better than yours, but your skills are better than mine in engineering. So, okay. You know. Okay. Liberal arts, you know. That's all we do is read, okay? All right. Now that I've dichotomized our congregation into two warring factions, <laughs> and the faction that I'm part of is going to lose because the faction that I'm not part of is much, so much bigger. But anyway, moving on. Look, for the last nine months, we've been looking at the Bible story, a grand sweep of Scripture. And I passed out a, uh, you know, for those of you who are new or weren't here last week, uh, if you want to catch up to where we are, because we're about three quarters of the way through the story of the Old Testament, uh, I passed out a 12-page brochure, which you only, I told you, only have to read 36 lines or even uh, uh, 18 phrases or something like that. Anyway, there's a catch-up, there's some on the front here, and there's some in the magazine back in the back. But the point I want to make is this. The reason reading the Bible can be detrimental to our faith, and the reason our faith can hurt us is it builds up, we, we build up artificial expectations. It's not what the Bible says. It's what we take the Bible to say, because we don't know the big picture. We don't know where it all fits in, and, and I'll show you that later on from Jeremiah 29. So what we're trying to do now is have an overview, a sweep of biblical history. So we know where all the pieces fit in. And if you don't follow the detail, if 12 pages is too much for you to bother with, it is really, really simple, boiled down to its core. The first thing that happened in Eden is that God gave people grace. God created this beautiful environment, which was great for Adam and Eve. All he ever asked of them was that they respond to him in worship, in relationship, and in obedience. And he laid down very few requirements. But they didn't reciprocate. Instead, they disobeyed. And they moved away from him. They hid from him. And so they were exiled from Eden. And Eden was lost. It's a really simple process. The three steps. Eden, reciprocation refused, and then they were exiled from Eden. Then God starts over again with Abraham and with Israel. And he basically follows the same three-step process. He comes to them and offers them grace. And he offers Abraham three promises. The promises of descendants and land and influence over the whole world. And basically, this is almost as good as Eden. Not, not entirely as good, but it's pretty much parallel to Eden. Almost as good, just a little bit not so glorious. And then he laid out a reciprocation. And that's all the, you know, all we know about the Old Testament is law. But Old Testament starts with grace. And all the law comes down to is reciprocation. And it comes down to these same two basic points. Will you worship me? Will you obey me? Now, it fleshes out a lot more of the details than Eden did. 
But God has asked them to reciprocate by worship and obedience. And instead, they refused. And so they went into exile. Israel was conquered by foreign enemies. And to pacify, to keep Israel from rebelling, they took all the leadership, the priests, the kings, the the warriors, those they hadn't killed, they dragged into exile. And then Israel suffered bitterly in exile. Now that's as much as we've covered so far. But now we're entering the post-exilic period. And Israel returns. And you see that the first two promises of Abraham are recovered. Israel, people, the new king, the new empire takes over, the new emperor says, okay, Israel, you can go back to your land. And so a lot of the people come back to the land. And those are the first two promises to Abraham, descendants and land. They still can't control the world, but descendants and land, they come back to the land. And so now the question for the post-exilic period will be this. Is Israel going to reciprocate? And what will happen? Will they go back into exile? How will God judge them if they don't reciprocate? This threefold pattern, three times in the Old Testament. That's the entire Old Testament, nine propositions. And they repeat, three of them repeat three times. It's really easy to know what the flow of thought is going on. So now there's a whole stream of books that are called post-exilics. We're not going to look at it this morning. I have a slide on it, but we're going to look at it next week more. I'm going to skip it in the sake of time here. But these are the books. Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. These are the post-exilics. And they're all trying to answer that one basic question. What's going to happen now? Now that God was gracious again, now that God brought his people back to the land, what's going to happen Are they going to reciprocate? Are they going to be destroyed? Will they break this pattern that they've done twice already? Will they break this bad pattern and survive? And that's the question of all the post-exilics. For the next seven or eight weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, Nehemiah, Malachi. We'll be looking at these books together. Because they're going to address this question. Will Israel be faithful to God? Will Israel retain God's blessings? But for this morning... We look particularly at the scripture that uh, David, Pastor David read, which is Ezra chapter 3. Turn with me. Um, well, before we turn to Ezra 3, if you have a pew Bible in front of you, uh, page 187, what we want to look at first is Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy 30 helps to explain the kind of crisis that we go through and Jim Gilliam went through when crisis hits us, the kind of crisis of faith we went through. Deuteronomy 30, these are, you know, the f- fifth book of the Bible, the five books of Moses. This is, this is centuries earlier. Centuries earlier, as Moses was about to die, he talks to Israel and he warns them. He can, God has revealed the future to him, or the conditions, the general, God has revealed the future in general terms. And Moses speaks to Israel. Notice what he has to say to them as the people gather before him. Deuteronomy chapter 30. When all these blessings and cursings I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. You see what Moses is anticipating centuries earlier. 
is that God has blessed Israel. Now he calls Israel to reciprocate. Moses anticipates, because he, le- he dealt with the people, he anticipates they will not reciprocate. They will be cursed by God. They'll forfeit the blessings. They'll be sent into exile. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. See, this is the exile. God is going to disperse you among the nations. God is going to send you into exile. Verse 2. When that happens, when you're in exile, when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, when you're in exile and you repent for the sin that drove you there and you cry out to God for deliverance, verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes. He will have compassion on you. He will gather you again from the nations where he has scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there, Lord Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. Israel had this Bible when they were sent into exile. And in exile, they read these promises. They read the interpretation of their suffering. You've sinned against God. But they read these promises. God has not finished with you. If you repent, God will bring you back. And they read these promises and they take them to heart. And then what happens? The empire that conquered them is in turn conquered. And the new emperor says, you can go back to your countries. And they see the answer of God. That they'd been banished to the most distant land under the heavens. And now God had allowed them back. But take a look at verse 9, what else God says about it. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous, just as he delighted in your ancestors. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law, and turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Anyone who reads this, and is in exile, and now is invited back, what's he going to expect will happen? The Lord, your God, will make you most prosperous in all your labors. He will delight in you if you obey the Lord, your God. Deuteronomy 30 set up an expectation that when our suffering is finally over, when we repent, when God delivers us, he's going to bring us back to the land. And it's going to be a glorious time. Almost like Eden again. That's the expectation that the Bible sets up for them. That's the expectation that God sets up for them. But then what happens in Ezra chapter 3? Page 335 in your pew Bible. Ezra chapter 3. Today's passage. When the seventh month came, the, the first year that Israel had come back from exile and settled in their towns, the people, assembled, within seven months, they all assembled together as one in Jerusalem. They all came from wherever they were around the country and came to gather in Jerusalem. And Joshua, son of Josadak, and his follow, fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the Lord God of Israel. They'd only been in town for seven Months. They've only been back in the country for seven months. And they gather in Jerusalem to build this altar. Because why? God had said, worship me and obey me. They're back seven months and they start working on this altar. 
Verse 3, despite their fear of the peoples around them, it wasn't safe. When they were moved out, other people were moved in. Now they move back, and you've got Jews living amongst non-Jews. They weren't, despite their fear of the peoples, you see the courage. They built this altar on its foundation. They sacrificed burnt offerings on it. And then in verse 7, after they built the altar, that's not good enough. They want to worship God and honor God. So verse 7, they give money to the masons and carpenters. They give food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so they'll bring cedar logs in so that they can rebuild the temple. And in the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of the God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, and the rest of the people began the work. And they began to rebuild this temple. And then verse 10, they laid the foundations of the temple and they celebrated. All they got down, was not the, not the structure on top, all they got done was the foundations and they celebrated. Verse 11, with praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, God is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. They worshiped God for bringing them out of exile. They worshiped God for bringing them back to Canaan, back to Palestine. They worshiped God for keeping them safe while they built the foundations. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord. He is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. And the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So they're celebrating in worship. Some of them or to some extent, they were celebrating in worship. Notice what verse 12 says. Many of the older priests and the Levites and the heads of the families, the, those who had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. One group shouted for joy. The other wept in disappointment. No one could distinguish the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise, the sound was heard far away. They're both caught up in the emotion of the event. But those, and those who, who are seeing this for the first time, celebrating that God is permitting them to rebuild the temple because now they can worship him. Now he accepts them. They're reciprocating as he requires. The others who'd seen the temple in all of its glory, in all of its splendor, are in grief because what they've started is cost them so much, is so small, builds so slowly, is so unimpressive. So they're struggling with the expectations that Deuteronomy gave and the details of their own personal experience. And that's really the message that we'll be looking at for the next eight or nine weeks. Because each of the post-exilics, Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi, each of them addresses this problem. If God has forgiven us, if God has brought us back to the land as he promised, if this God is great and powerful, why doesn't our lives show that? Why have we accomplished so little? Why is it so hard to make progress? Why is it taking us so long? 
All we heard in chapter 3 was that they built the foundation. Then they start to build the temple on top of the foundation. And the neighboring country said, look, we'll help. And they said, no, you won't. We're, we're Jews. We're different than you are. We worship the one true God. You can't join us. You're not part of our religion. And so the, the surrounding people say, you've got to stop. They're celebrating, laying the foundation, and then construction has to stop for 16 years. Their opponents consulted the emperor. The emperor said, stop the construction. They had to stop. God had brought us here. God had told us to build. God blessed us and we built. And now, we can't. For 16 years they had to wait. And finally, Haggai and Zechariah come into the picture and they say, rebuild. Emperor, no, rebuild. And the the neighboring opponents again consulted the new emperor who authorized the building to go ahead. It took them 20 years to build this temple. And when they finally got it built, it was small. It was unimpressive. The process was hard. And it took much longer than they ever would have expected. And so all of the post-exilic books deal with this discrepancy between their expectation and their actual experience. And this is where I want to draw the parallel to us today. Between our expectation and our experience. And what that does to our faith. What that does to our confidence in the Bible. When, that, when crisis hits and that expectation hits home. The point we get from Ezra is that God does restore repentant Israel, as he promised. But boy, that's the only thing that happens the way they expected. Other than that, God moved way too slow. Other than that, their lives were way too hard. At best, you could say God moved incrementally, and they expected the promises of Deuteronomy to be fulfilled immediately. Now, what does this have to say to us? Let's think back to uh, Jim Gilliam. Now, I don't know what Bible verses he based his faith on and all that. But I will know the one that we commonly do. One we commonly cite is the one I've already cited, Jeremiah 29. And it's relevant here, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you. I mean, we must, a lot of you would have memorized this, as I did. Plans to prosper and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. And we pull that Bible verse out. We memorize it as an individual verse. We pull that verse out. And whenever crisis hits, this is what we recite to ourselves, isn't it? Have you recited it to yourself in crisis? I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope in a future. And we think if cancer hits, we cite this verse and we pray to God to deliver. If a heart attack or a stroke hits, we pray this verse and we pray to God to answer. If, if unemployment hits, if we lose our jobs, or if our kids have trouble getting bullied or failing in school, we hold hold of this verse and we hope, we take it as God's promise that he'll deliver. But you know, Jeremiah 29 11 was never about the private life of God, of individuals in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 29 was about this exile. Jeremiah 29, 10, the preceding verse says, when 70 years are completed, 
When you go into exile, and the kingdom that conquered you, when that kingdom has lasted 70 years, and their exile lasted 50 of those 70 years, I will come to you. And for, after 70 years of suffering, if we want to quote Jeremiah 29:11, what we can say is, after 70 years of chemo, after 70 years of struggle, after 70 years of disability, then God will deliver. We want to be careful with this verse. Verse 12, if our suffering is due to God's sin, like their exile was due to... If our suffering is due to our sin, like their exile was due to their sin, then we can cite this, verse 12. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. But if we're suffering, and our suffering is not due to our sin, then Jeremiah 29, 11 doesn't promise that God will restore us and take away our suffering. The suffering is not due to our sin in the first place. Sometimes life is hard in a fallen world. It's not because of sin. Sometimes life is simply hard. God gives us grace to bear through it. Think of it this way. For us, God seems unfair or unmoving, unmoved when we suffer for cancer or, or you know, uh, uh, heart attack or unemployment. Because our lives are so easy, we can live with this blithe American cultural optimism. You know, we live in a prosperous country. There's, at least for people in our circumstances, there's always more options, there's always more possibilities. And so we think life is good until crisis hits and then our faith is shattered. How about the children in the orphanage in China, many of whom are born with disabilities and their parents can't cope so they give the kids up? What optimism can they have? They're born with disability in the first place and then the parents give them up. Or let's think more broadly. Think of Serbia and Croatia in the 1990s. Or Rwanda in the 1990s, or Sudan in the 1980s, or Uganda in the 19, since the 1970s. Think of Iraq and Syria, or even Ecuador and Guatemala. Think of the Philippines or Indonesia, where there'd be violence or poverty. God hasn't promised us. Jeremiah 29:11 isn't designed there to promise us an easy life. You know, this is American cultural optimism read into the Bible. It's not us reading the Bible in order to hear its critique of American cultural optimism. We have easy lives here for the most part, and we can celebrate that. But let's not say we have them because we're holy, or let's not say we have them because of God's grace. We have them in a generic sense because of God's grace. We have easy lives because our country is prosperous, and we're well-educated, and we work hard. There's a lot of reasons that we have an easy life that don't apply to Jeremiah 29.11, and Jeremiah 29.11 doesn't apply. And if we read the Bible and, and force it into American cultural optimism, then when crisis hits, our faith is incredibly fragile. But it's not our faith we're giving up, not our faith in God we're giving up. It's our faith in American cultural optimism we're giving up. So if that's not what the Bible means, or what Ezra 3 means, or teaches, what, is it, what does it teach? Ezra and all the, all the post-exilists teach us this. That if God's people are under his punishment for sin, all is not lost. 
If you sin egregiously, you don't start this way. My life is hard, therefore I must have sinned. You don't, st- you don't start that. It doesn't work that way. You start from the other end. If I sin egregiously, and then misfortune hits me. Not if I lose my temper, you know. Not if I kick the, well, yeah, maybe if you kick the, the dog. Or certainly if you kick your brother. But anyway, but if we sin egregiously, if you're having an affair, or if you're cheating people in business, and then your life goes hard, yeah, start looking. Maybe God is disciplining me or punishing me. The promise of the post-exilics, first of all, is this. Is that God may judge, God may punish, but God does not let go. The nation that repents, he restores. The denominations and churches that repent, he restores. The individuals that repent, he restores. Hope is not lost if we're being punished for our sin. Because repentance can bring restoration. If you're suffering and you haven't sinned egregiously, then you can repent all you want and it doesn't necessarily mean your life is going to change because that suffering is not due to God's punishment. Sometimes we suffer because we still live in a fallen world. God is great. God is gracious. But the world is still fallen. So sometimes, even when God is blessing, it moves slowly. It looks insignificant. It's hard work. And yet he's still blessing. The second point we can pick up from Ezra, from all the post-exilics, is something about the pace with which God works. When Israel came back to the land from exile, why shouldn't they have been surprised that the temple was, that they had to work hard to build the temple, that they faced opposition when they built the temple? Why shouldn't that have surprised them? Why should they have thought that when they came back to the land that everything was going to go easily and well? The first time Israel came to the land, everything didn't go easily and well. It was slow. It was hard. Even with the blessing of God. Uh, The second time Israel came to the land, everything didn't go smoothly. It was hard. It was slow. It moved incrementally. We can expect the same things. When you know when Jesus came, his work of salvation was hard. Moved slowly. Even under the blessing of God. When the early church started, except for a couple, notor- a couple of remarkable days in the book of Acts, when, when the work of God in the early church moved slowly, it was hard. It moved incrementally. We've got to expect this. With the grace and power of God, we can be blessed. We can make progress. The work we do for him will succeed. But it's still a fallen world. So it may succeed only slowly through tough work and hard circumstances. As we engage in ministry, as we send people into missions, the the biggest challenge we will face is false expectations implanted by American cultural optimism that we will go overseas and within one year or four years or eight years, we're going to change the world for Jesus. Israel did not change the world in eight years before the exile. Through the Abraham. 
Israel did not change the world in eight years after the exile, the period we're looking at now. Jesus did not change the world in eight years in his time. We won't change the world in eight years, even under the blessing of God, that what we do for him may go slowly, it may be hard, may face opposition. And the challenge that will come to us then is whether our faith will be governed by American cultural optimism or whether it will be governed by scripture. The challenge that comes to us when we face crisis in our lives is whether we grab hold of scripture and its expectations or whether we will impose our expectations on it. The challenge that comes to us in our lives as crisis hits is whether we will be among those who give a great shout of praise when the only sign of God's grace we can see is the foundations of a temple or whether we will be those who weep because we remember how glorious the old temple was. When we see small signs of God's mercy and grace at work, do we celebrate for his work and mercy? Or do we grieve that it's not bigger to satisfy us? Let's pray together. Father, through your word, by your spirit, help us to be not those who impose our expectations on you, but those who celebrate your graces to us, no matter how small, no matter how tough, no matter how incremental. We ask for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Chuck. Would you please rise as we uh, respond with worship and song?